Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn to them in the New Testament to the book of Titus and chapter number one. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn to page 167, and you would find yourself at Titus 1. Now, as someone who has lived in parts of seven decades, and I didn't say I have lived for seven decades, but I have lived in parts of seven decades, I can say that the last decade and a half has become in our culture an era of terrorists. We have terrorists. We're in an era of that. Terrorists who are out to wreak havoc in our culture. Just in this last week, two of them were sentenced to prison. One was an Uzbekistan man by the name of Kadyrov who had plotted to kill President Obama, and he had purchased an automatic rifle and four grenades from an undercover officer. Another one who was just sentenced to prison was Mohammed Zazi. His son plotted to attack the subways in New York City. And Zazi had been found guilty of destroying evidence and lying to investigators. And having lived in parts of seven decades, I just have to say, we live in a new type of battleground in our day, and it is imperative that we be alert, that we understand the tactics of terrorists, and that we respond appropriately. But what is interesting is that the New Testament church has from its inception been involved in a battleground, and we could call that the battlefield of truth. And the church from the very beginning has had to face what I like to call errorists. You just take the T off of the word, error-I-S-T. And these errorists are individuals who deviate from what Scripture teaches. Their aim is in the spiritual community to wreak havoc. And it is imperative that we are alert to them, that we understand their tactics, and that we respond appropriately. Now, this has been a very clear thing, this issue of errors and the church. All the way through the New Testament, we see it. For example, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31, Paul is talking to the elders at Ephesus, and he says to them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Savage wolves will come in among you, and from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So, be on your guard. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he says, There will be false teachers who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And then you can look at Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And these are just some of the passages. They're not all of them. But Paul writes there and he says, Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions 
and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. I really like the words of Chuck Swindoll. He said, the realm of truth is not a playground, it is a battleground. And we have entitled our message today, The Battlefield of Truth. And we've been involved in a study that we've entitled Designer's Fashion. It comes from the book of Titus, adorning the doctrine of God in every respect that we are to adorn the doctrine of God in every way. We're to bring the beauty out. We're to display and dignify it. And we've been saying that as individuals and as a church, we are to bring the beauty of Christ out in our head and in our heart and in our hands, in our head through the doctrine that we hold to, in our heart through the character that we allow him to develop in us, and through our hands in the deeds that we do for other people. Now, this morning we've come and chapter 1 to verses 10 to 16, and I would like to read those verses and then invite you to follow along as I read what Paul says. He says in verse 10, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Now today, in our time together, we're going to do really four things. Number one, we're going to look at the character of errorists. And then secondly, from these verses, we're going to look at the tactics of errorists. And then third, we're going to look at the proper response to errorists. And then finally, we're going to end it with our personal challenge as individuals who follow Christ and as a church. So that's where we're going today. Let's begin by delving into the character of errorists. Now, we ended last time with verse 9, and I want you to go back and look at verse 9 for a moment. It's talking about the kinds of elders, the kinds of leaders we need to have in the church. And he said they should be people who are holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that they will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. In other words, we need leaders in the church who would teach healthy doctrine, who are able to biblically confront, correct, and rebuke. Now, why is that necessary? Well, you notice the little connective word that begins verse 10. It says, for. 
He's going to introduce the reason why we need elders and leaders like this in the church. He says, for there are many rebellious men. What he means here by saying that they are rebellious, he means that they don't submit to divine authority. They don't stick to the Scriptures. They distort the Scriptures. And you'll notice, he says, that there are many of them. This is not some isolated issue. This is not something that maybe is going to come up sometime over a 15-year period. He's saying there is a battlefield that we are on, and it is the battlefield of truth. And regarding their character, he, he goes on to say that they are empty talkers. Notice that there in verse 10. They are empty talkers. What he's really saying is this. When it comes to people who can speak, they're very entertaining. They're entertaining, they're captivating, but there's no substance. There's no solid biblical content. They're talkers, yes, but they're empty talkers. Their teaching, he's saying, does not bring out the beauty of Christ in our head, heart, and hands. Their teaching does not promote healthy doctrine. Their teaching does not help us to develop true spiritual character. Their teaching does not give us a passion for doing deeds to other people. He says, there are many of them, they're rebellious, they're empty talkers, and he says, and they are deceivers. Literally, it says they are mind deceivers. You see what these errorists will do is they will present what they're presenting as truth. They will even use the Bible. But what they are doing is distorting what the Bible teaches. They twist what the Bible teaches. They change its real meaning. They use deception as they teach. They're rebellious, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers. And then he says this, especially those of the circumcision, those who are in the circumcision group. Now, we need to understand a little of the context of what was happening in that day. And some hints are given to us here, I think, down in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He talks about how we are not to be paying attention to Jewish myths. Keep your finger here in Titus 1. Turn a few pages, three or four, to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to look at verses 3 to 7 in 1 Timothy because we had some similar things going on in Ephesus. And Paul wrote Timothy about that. And notice what he says in verse 3 of 1 Timothy. He says, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, the errorists straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make 
confident assertions. Now, I like to call this group of individuals that I think are being alluded to in Titus 1 and here in 1 Timothy 1, the gospel plus group. The gospel plus group. The people who say, well, you need to believe in the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for you, paid for all of your sins, and you need to believe and trust in that. It's the gospel plus something else. It's what Christ did plus the rite of circumcision. That was what was common in Paul's day. It's what Christ did plus baptism in order to be saved. It's what Christ did plus certain rituals. It's what Christ did plus certain prayers that you have to say. It's what Christ did plus, and you can just fill in the blank. It can be all kinds of things that go in the blank. The gospel plus crowd. And I'll tell you something. Paul had a very strong opinion about those folks. Turn a few books to the left in your New Testament to the book of Galatians in chapter number 1. Galatians 1. And Paul takes on these gospel plus people head on. And he has some extremely strong words. And in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Galatians, he says to the Galatian believers, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. This is the gospel plus, which is really not another Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, notice what Paul says here. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, and then he makes a statement that is very hard to translate in its strength, let him be accursed. Literally, it says, let that person be damned. And then in case we miss the message, he goes on to say in verse 9, as we have said before, I'm going to say it again. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, this gospel plus message, let him be damned. That's strong stuff. And that's part of what was being faced, I believe, in the book of Titus, the gospel plus crowd. If you go back to Titus One, there is a second hint given to us in verse 14. He says, not paying attention to Jewish myths. And then he says, and commandments of men. Commandments of men mentions man-made, or I think refers to man-made spiritual rules. You have the gospel plus group. Now he's talking about what I like to call the external spirituality group. The people who say, well, spirituality is measured by what you do on the outside. These are the people who take the Pharisee approach. The external spirituality group are into externals. They're the people who have these long list of rules that you need to do. And usually it's a long list of don'ts. If you want to be spiritual, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't. You, the idea here of the external spirituality group, they'll say, well, as long as you are eating a certain kind of diet, you're going to be spiritual. As long as you go through certain rituals, you will be spiritual. As long as you say regularly certain prescribed prayers, you will be spiritual. As long as you have the right attendance at your church, you punch your spiritual time card, then you are spiritual. See, that's what the external spirituality group likes to say. And the implication is this, 
As long as we go to church, as long as we participate in the rites and the ceremonies, as long as we say the prescribed prayers, as long as we eat the right foods, whatever it may be, how you live the rest of the time, well, that's kind of up to you. You know, how you relate to your spouse, how you honor your children, how you honor your parents is really secondary. It's really insignificant because, you see, it's what you do externally that's the measure of spirituality. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And I want to tell you what the Scripture has to say. It says there's two keys to spirituality. Let me give these two keys to spirituality. The first key is it's all about the heart. It says in the Bible, God looks upon what? The heart. It's not what's coming externally necessarily. It's what's going on in the heart. The heart is more important than the external behavior. And the second key to spirituality is that we align ourselves with the truth of God. Those men and women are the keys to spirituality. The first key is the heart. The second key is we line ourselves up with what the Bible says. Now notice it goes on to talk a little bit more about them. Um, Down in verse 16, look at verse 16. It says there that they profess to know God. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. They claim allegiance to God, and by the way, that's a very easy thing to claim, but by their deeds they deny Him. In other words, their life indicates otherwise. In other words, what Paul is saying to Titus here is that there's this dichotomy that exists. There's a dichotomy between what they say and what they are, between what they claim and what they practice, a dichotomy between their words and their actions. Now, he's not talking about perfection because all of us have some kind of gaps, but he's talking about a significant gap. He says there's a difference between what they say and what they are, what they claim and what they practice, what their words are and what their actions are. And whenever there is a gap between someone's talk and their walk, the true measure of reality is their walk. It's not what they say as much as how they are living. And notice God's view of them here in verse 16. He describes them as being detestable. We could translate it despicable. They are disobedient because they're not following Scripture, and they are worthless for any good deed. They are just unfit from a spiritual standpoint. John Benton said this, if only the truth can save the lost, think about that, which is true. Only the truth of the gospel can save the lost. But if only the truth can save the lost, then to neglect it or to tamper with it simply in order to gain popularity or to be thought more respectable is to be guilty of the most heinous crime against humanity. See, if it's only the gospel truth that can save someone, you start tampering with that, and that is a heinous crime. So we said we were going to look first at the character of the heiress. The second thing we want to do is look at the tactics of the errorists. And I bring your attention to verse 11. Notice verse 11, particularly the latter part of that verse. 
He says, they are teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. In other words, these errorists, he says, are in it for the monetary benefits. They're in it for the luxurious lifestyle that they can get. They are out for financial gain. Nothing gets my goat more than these people are out there doing the prosperity teaching, where if you just simply do all that you should do, you will be completely healthy. If you just do all that you should do, you will be completely wealthy. Whenever you hear that, you need to look at their lifestyle. And what you're going to see are people who are into that message for the financial benefits it brings them, for the luxurious lifestyle that it brings them, because they are out for financial gain. Do you remember what Paul said about the necessity of leaders back up in chapter 1 and verse 7? He said, you should choose leaders, notice the last statement in that verse, who are not fond of sordid gain. The heiress are fond of sordid gain. You know, what was interesting, a number of years ago, I thought, you know, I want to find out and understand the motives of false teachers, the motives of heiress. And so one of the things that I did is I worked my way all the way through the New Testament. I looked at every passage that had anything to say about false teachers or heiress. And here's what I found. There are three motives in the New Testament that they have. I want to give them to you. The first motive is money and stuff. The second motive is sex and sensuality. And the third motive is power and popularity. Now, any false teacher can display one or any combination of those motives. And maybe you have been aware in your spiritual experience of people who have been false teachers. And I want you to think back, if you can think of that situation, and I will absolutely guarantee you that one of these three motives will be apparent in their life. Money and stuff, sex and sensuality, and power and popularity. Those are the things that draw them into being an errorist. Now, we come down now to verse 12. I want you to notice verse 12 as we talk about the tactics of the heiress. And this verse is, is confusing to many. You know, they look at this verse and they're saying, what in the world is going on here? Because we have Paul writing to Titus, who is on the Isle of Crete. The Cretans live there. And he quotes this person. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So what's going on here? People have a hard time understanding the point. Well, this person who is described here as being a prophet of their own, um, that was the way they designated him. We would probably call him a philosopher. It's a guy by the name of Epimenides, and Epimenides lived in the 6th century B.C. Epimenides was from the Isle of Crete. Epimenides is the one who stepped up about his own people and his own culture, and he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's the quote. And then Paul steps up and says, this testimony is true. 
Now, I just want you to know when you see that, that Paul is not giving this as a model for cross-cultural sensitivity. You know, when you're trying to work with a people group and you take all the bad attributes and then you just simply make a statement to all of them and go, you know, that's really, really true of all you folks out there. That's really not what's happening here. We just need to look at this a little more carefully to understand. Remember, Epimenides is saying of his culture, Cretans are always liars. What he means by that is as a culture, as a people group, we tend to be out to deceive You know, a lot of different people groups in the ancient world got a reputation. The Corinth, the people in Corinth, the Corinthians became known for their participation in illicit sex. And so to Corinthianize in the ancient world meant to engage in illicit sex. Those who were part of the Isle of Crete, the Cretans, became known for the fact that they were out to deceive as a people group. To cretize meant to lie or to cheat. To play the cretin meant to deceive or to manipulate. Let me give you one example of what they did on the Isle of Crete. Uh, They really wanted to get a lot more people coming to their island, so they put out the word that the tomb of the Greek god Zeus was right on the Isle of Crete. Of course, you know, he's a Greek god. He's not supposed to be dead anyway. But they said, hey, the tomb of Zeus is here. Everybody come to Crete. Come on, come and see the tomb of Zeus. We'll take you to the tomb. And that brought them a lot of notoriety and a lot of foot traffic. But see, the mindset of, of, of the Cretans was, hey, you bend the truth, you lie. If it brings you financial gain, that's Okay. Cretans are always liars. Second thing he said is that they are evil beasts. What does an evil beast really do? Well, they prey on other people. And he says, and they are lazy gluttons. What is that really referring to? Well, a lazy glutton is out for themselves. A lazy glutton feeds off of other people. Now, here's what we need to understand. When Paul reads that quote back, and then he says, this testimony is true, he's not saying, hey, everybody in Crete's like this. I mean, in verses 5 to 9, he just talked about the kind of spiritual leaders that they were to identify and point as elders. He's not saying everyone's like that. Even the Cretans, though, would acknowledge and brag, those are our traits, that's what we're like. Here's what Paul's doing when he says this testimony is true. He's applying the national reputation to the false teachers. He says, that's what the false teachers are like. They're liars. They're out to deceive. They're evil beasts. They prey on other people. They're lazy gluttons. They're out for themselves. They feed off of others. We've looked at the character of the heiress. We've looked at some of the tactics of the heiress. The third thing we want to do is look at the proper response to the heiress. And before we get there, I just want you to know what is not going to be listed. A proper response to heiress is not to ignore them and tolerate them, to just go passive. The proper response is not going to be to minimize and underestimate the impact that they might make. That's not a proper response. Well, what is the proper response that we are to have? Well, the first one is they are to be muzzled. They must be muzzled. We see that in verse 11 where it says, 
They must be silenced. Literally, it says their mouths must be muzzled. We should not allow them to talk their spiritual trash. And notice he goes on to say, because they are upsetting whole families. They are bringing spiritual confusion and damage. There is upheaval in families in the church. There is distress that they are introducing. As I said, I've been around for quite a while. And many years ago, I remember a situation that happened when when our church was located on Rock Creek Road, where Northeast Baptist Church is currently. And we were a very small church at the time. In fact, we had one adult fellowship group that met, and it was relatively small. And when you're that small, you're always excited about new families who would come because every new family has a geometric impact because when you're that tiny, you know, adding one is a big, big thing. And I remember we had this one sharp couple who started coming to Wildwood. And some issues began to arise. And they began to spout some very bad doctrine. They did it primarily in disrupting the small adult group that we had. And yet some of it even happened in the bigger meeting. And I could still remember the Sunday after this happened again when I decided this has to be dealt with. And so I, they went out to the parking lot, and I followed them out to the parking lot, and they got in their car. I came over to the car door. The husband rolled his window down. I knelt down, and I said to them, what you have been doing, you cannot continue to do. The things that you are teaching, we do not believe are biblical. I cannot allow you to continue to do that. You are disrupting things. You are upsetting people. I want you to know that we would love to have you here at Wildwood. But you cannot continue to do what you're doing. If you continue to do that, it would be better if you found another place to go. And I never did ever see them back. But you see, that's the first part of the proper response to Eris. They must be muzzled. And then the second thing he says is we need to reprove them strongly. That's in verse 13. For this reason, reprove them severely. It means sharply. It means forcefully. Not in a vicious way, but in a serious way. And by the way, the, the verb here, when it says reprove them, it's in, in the original language in the present tense. It means that we need to keep on doing this. You keep after it with them. Why? So that, notice that, so that they may be sound in the faith. I want you to keep your finger here. Turn with me, probably just a page to the left, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And verses 24 to 26, we have a a parallel passage that I think expands on this whole idea here, how we are to reprove them strongly so that they may be sound in the faith. Notice chapter 2, 2 Timothy, verse 24, it says, "The, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, 
patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, notice this, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Reprove them strongly so that they may be sound in the faith, so that they might come to their senses, so that they might return to the right path, and the right path is the path of truth. You know, men and women, one thing we have in the Bible is we have an authoritative revelation. And Harry Blameyers says this. He says, an authoritative revelation leaves only two alternative reactions. Either the bowed head or the turned back. An authoritative revelation leaves us with only two alternative reactions. Either we bow our head into submission to what it says, or we turn our back on the book. We've talked about the character of the heiress. We've talked about the tactics of the heiress. We've talked about the proper response to the heiress. Now we want to talk about our personal challenge. And in order to do that, I want to look at another parallel passage, the one we read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Let's go back there. We read it earlier. This is our personal challenge. Paul writes, the goal of our instruction, this is what it's all about, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the divine aim of truth. This is why we open up the Bible. This is the goal of our instruction. And the divine aim of truth, this is where it's to lead us, is, is love. That we would be others-oriented. I remind you that a definition of love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. That's part of the divine aim of truth that the response in your life and mine would be a response of love. And then he goes on to mention a pure heart. The divine aim of truth is that we would be confessing our sins. We would have short accounts with God. And also he mentions there as the divine aim of truth, a good conscience. Remember, your conscience is the inner witness between what is right and wrong. And you have a good conscience when the pattern of our life is that we listen to the Spirit of God working in our conscience, that we don't squelch that out. And the divine aim of truth is also a sincere faith. Literally, it means without hypocrisy. It means there's no spiritual masquerading going on in our life. You know, where we sort of act this way around the church and then we're this way around our family where what comes out of our lips matches our life. The battlefield of truth. Now, as we get ready to close, I want to talk about some life response that I think we can have as individuals and we should have as a collective group, as a church family. And the first response is that we need to be students of the Word. You see, it's sound doctrine and healthy teaching that leads 
to spiritual health and spiritual vitality, and so we need to be students of the Word. It is the Word that will lead us as we bring it into our life to being spiritual, healthy, and balanced. That's true of my life and your life, and it's true of us collectively as a church. It leads to being spiritual, healthy, and balanced. So the first thing we need to do is be students of the Word. second thing we need to do is we need to stand up for the truth. We need to embody the very verses that we read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. That's the kind of way that we stand up for the truth as individuals and as a church family. So we are to be students of the Word, we're to stand up for the truth, and then the third life response I believe we are to have is to live out the truth. You know, we talk about our mission as being to shine as light in our homes and our community in the world. And you remember, light is an acrostic, L-I-G-H-T. Each letter stands for something, and the L stands for living out the truth. And that's what we're to be doing. We're to be living out having a pure heart. I don't, I don't know what's been going on this past week in your life, But is there something in your life that is currently unconfessed before God? We are to be displaying, as we live out the truth, a good conscience. Think about the last week or so. Have you been sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is working through your conscience? Or have you been maybe more turning a cold shoulder to that? We're to live out the truth. That means that we have sincere faith, that there's no pretending. There's no masks that we're wearing. You know, you pretend and you wear a mask because you want to impress other people. But living out the truth means there are no masks. And then living out the truth means that we love. You have as part of your passion as you go through your week and you think about your week, how can I meet other people's needs? How can I do some good deeds to other people? See, that's what it means to live out the truth. Let's pray together. Father, we just really want to thank you so much for your word. Again, it's alive, it's powerful, it can change our life, it can give us new perspective. We need to realize that we live in an era where there's a battle for truth. And there are errorists, as there always have been errorists, and we need to be alert to them. We need to understand their strategies. But I would pray, Father, for myself and for every one of us individually and for us as a collective group that we would be students of the Word, that we would understand what your Bible really has to say, and we know that brings us true spiritual vitality, that we would stand up for the truth, that we wouldn't be afraid to do that. And most important of all, that we would really live out the truth. Not that we would be perfect because we're not going to be, that we would be men and women who would display truth in our life because we ultimately want to glorify the one who died for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. And let's honor him right now. Let's see him.